Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, March 12, 2023. I'm your reader, Sharon Faldudo, and a reminder that it was daylight savings time, so the time sprung forward one hour overnight last night. From the front page of today's Gazette, Work on I-80-380 Interchange Ahead of Schedule by Isabella Zaluska of the Gazette in Iowa City. The massive reconstruction of the Interstate 80-380 Interchange is entering its fifth year ahead of schedule, with another milestone expected in fall. By Labor Day, all the new ramps at the heavily traveled interchange should be open, according to Hugh Holek, resident construction engineer with the Iowa Department of Transportation. We'll be working on median barriers and things like that, but by Labor Day, we should have everything open to where traffic is going to be ultimately, he said, and most of the paving could be done by the 4th of July. How the spring cooperates with weather is going to make a big difference, Holock said. The $387 million interchange project, one of the Iowa DOT's top priorities, is at the junction of I-80, I-380, and Highway 218 in Johnson County. The project, which began in 2018, will replace all four loops of the interchange with directional ramps. Additionally, parts of I-380 north of Interstate 80 and parts of Highway 218 south of I-80 will be widened, as will I-80 on both sides of the interchange. Holock said the project overall is several months ahead of schedule, with some aspects more ahead than others. For example, construction of the Park Road Jasper Avenue Bridge over I-80 was supposed to start in 2024. It will likely be finished this July, Holock said. He said two dry summers in a row and a dry fall in 2021 helped a tremendous amount. Another factor that's helped has been creative staging by the project's contractor, which allowed crews to work in certain areas sooner than planned. Almost $5.4 million in financial incentives is available if the project is finished early, with $965,500 already paid out, Holock said. If they max out on all the incentives that are available, they would get an additional $4,410,000, Holock said. Also from the front page, Marengo cleanup underway, but questions linger, by Aaron Jordan of the Gazette in Marengo. The cleanup of Marengo is underway as private contractors, some paid for by taxpayers, treat water and remove soil contaminated in, de in a December explosion and fire at C60. Runoff from the fire has been filtered to remove toxic forever chemicals and already is being released into the Iowa River, officials said. Meanwhile, the Iowa Department of Natural Resources won't say whether C60 has met court-ordered deadlines and the court's mail to CEO Howard Brand III has been returned, unknown, unable to forward, court records show. But the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency says it is monitoring C60 and communicating with officials in other states about the company. EPA regional offices and program offices at EPA headquarters communicate regularly on issues of national significance, including issues surrounding companies with repeat non-compliance, Kellen Ashford, a spokesman for the EPA's Region 7, said in an email to the Gazette. Likewise, EPA coordinates with state partners to protect human health and environment by ensuring compliance and compliance issues are prioritized. EPA Region 7 has shared information about the C60 incident in Marengo with EPA headquarters and other regional offices. C60, which was trying to dissolve used roofing shingles into sellable components, did not have a permit to operate at the Marengo plant, yet had already processed 1,700 tons of shingles before the December 8th explosion, the company told the EPA in new records released to the Gazette. 
hundreds of thousands of gallons of hazardous chemicals, including diesel fuel, soybean oil, and a mysterious solvent called canisku, were on site when an unknown mechanical failure ignited flammable air vapor. The blast injured about a dozen people and forced evacuations of nearby houses. Firefighters from several counties fought the blaze for 18 hours. Water used to extinguish the fire dispersed hazardous liquids into water and soil around the site. The environmental cleanup around C60 is happening on two fronts. EcoSource, a Des Moines area contractor, is removing water and soil contaminated with petroleum products and other chemicals stored at the manufacturing site. A judge ordered C60 to pay EcoSource $330,000 and put $75,000 in trust for further cleanup. The state is paying Indiana firm Tetrasolve up to $834,000 to remove toxic forever chemicals from water in a 12 million gallon basin holding runoff from the fire. The perfluoroalkyl and polyfluoroalkyl substances, PFAs in the basin, came from firefighting foam used to fight the fire. In EcoSource's March 4th update to the DNR, company officials said they were done vacuuming up water standing at the site and have filled four tanks with a total 70,000 gallons. Early tests of the water indicate it's not hazardous, EcoSource said in the report. The DNR did not respond to the Gazette's questions about whether C60 has met other deadlines, including a March 3rd deadline to submit a remedial action plan. It's also unclear whether the company will be able to repay the state more than $1.4 million for cleaning up the PFAs and replacing firefighter gear contaminated during the fire. Tetrasolve and subcontractor Rain for Rent have treated 2.6 million gallons of water from the stormwater retention basin for PFAs as of March 3rd, the DNR said in an email Tuesday. Samples of treated water have been tested at the State Hygienic Laboratory in Coralville. The results demonstrated that the treatment is working and that the PFA results were under the minimum reporting levels of two parts per trillion, DNR spokeswoman Tammy Kraussman said. The treated water was scheduled to be released into the Iowa River on Friday, Iowa County Emergency Management Agency Coordinator Josh Humphrey said Thursday. The EPA and DNR can disclose that the hazardous characterization of chemicals stored at the facility and involved in the December 8, 2022 fire are flammability and moderate toxicity, Krausman said in an email. Heartland Co-op, which operated a soybean processing facility in the Marengo plant before C60 rented the space, has filed two new lawsuits in Iowa County against Brand and Dillon Brand, Howard Sun. The lawsuits, filed February 28th, allege Heartland supplied C60 last fall with more than $130,000 worth of diesel fuel for C60's operations, but C60 never paid for the fuel. A judge in January ordered C60 to pay Heartland $137,000 for the fuel, but the new lawsuits also ask for punitive damages in an amount sufficient to deter future similar conduct. Also from the front page, Iowa GOP all in on ambitious agenda by Tom Barton and Caleb McCullough of the Gazette-Lee Des Moines Bureau. Iowa's 2023 legislative session is proving remarkable in terms of the speed and volume of conservative legislation being advanced, according to numerous political observers on both sides of the political aisle. Emboldened by six years of conservative reforms under their belts and multiple elections that expanded their majorities in the House and Senate, Iowa Republicans have felt empowered to push a more conservative agenda this session, one focused on parental rights, school choice, and banning, banning gender-affirming care for minors. 
It's an agenda being driven by both local and national politics and which coincides with the 2024 GOP race for president, softening the ground for candidates to campaign on the same themes, said Donna Hoffman, a professor of political science at the University of Northern Iowa. It's remarkable the uptick in the speed of bills being brought up, debated, and passed very quickly, sometimes without a lot of citizen input, Hoffman said. Republican Governor Kim Reynolds used those larger majorities to double down on and expand her push for school choice legislation. Within the first three weeks of the session, lawmakers fast-tracked and Reynolds signed into law a new $345 million private school financial aid package, dramatically more expansive than previous proposals, including one that failed to pass the House last year when at least a dozen Republicans, many from rural areas, refused to support the measure. Many were concerned about the effect the policy would have had on schools in their area. Reynolds last summer took the rare measure of endorsing primary challengers to several fellow Republicans who opposed her proposal, ultimately leading to the loss of several incumbents. The results were a caucus more supportive of the governor's plan. Since then, Republican state lawmakers have advanced a host of legislation addressing gender policies and curricula in schools, mirroring efforts in other GOP-led states. Three months into 2023, the Human Rights Campaign, the nation's largest lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer civil rights organization, said it is already tracking 410 anti-LGBTQ bills that have been introduced in state houses across the country. Of those, 175 would specifically restrict the rights of transgender people, the highest number of bills targeting transgender people in a single year to date. A review from the Human Rights Campaign found that fewer than one in 10 of last year's 315 anti-equality bills became law. Corinne Green, policy and legislative strategist at Equality Federation, an LGBTQ rights nonprofit, said she has witnessed an increase in the variety and novelty of such legislation being introduced in state legislatures, including Iowa. This year, there are more than seven or eight strains or genres of anti-trans attacks that we've seen blanket the country this year, Green said. And Iowa is a state that has received many of the kind of new versions of these bills that we've seen over the country. In Iowa, a record 29 unique pieces of anti-LGBTQ legislation were introduced already this year, said Keenan Crow, a lobbyist with LGBTQ activist group One Iowa. That, they said, compares to 28 LGBTQ-related bills introduced during the two-year General Assembly in 21-22. We also had more bills go through subcommittee this year than have ever been introduced in previous years, Crow said. To say that this session is laser-focused on LGBTQ Iowans, I think that is even an understatement. State lawmakers last week passed a ban headed to Reynolds for her expected signature that would prohibit Iowa doctors from prescribing puberty blockers or hormone therapy to transgender children under the age of 18. It would also prohibit any surgeries on minors intended to affirm a gender that does not match up with their sex at birth. In the weeks before Iowa lawmakers passed the bill, Mississippi, South Dakota, and Tennessee all enacted similar bans. Other bills that have cleared the Iowa House or Senate would prohibit transgender students from using school bathrooms that correspond with their gender identity, and a ban on instruction on gender identity and sexual orientation in kindergarten through sixth grade. It has drawn comparisons to Florida's so-called Don't Say Gay law. Lawmakers last week also advanced restrictions on library books, prohibiting school libraries from including books that are not age-appropriate and that contain sexual content, as well as a measure requiring parental consent to accommodate a student's gender transition. A group of about a dozen Ankeny businesses this past week released a statement opposing the GOP-backed legislation targeting the LGBTQ population. 
The group of businesses said the hateful and discriminatory legislation will directly impact our businesses' ability to find and retain employees and customers and to thrive in our state. Kyle Krauss, whose family owns the convenience store chain Come and Go, tweeted Thursday, Bills like these aren't just an attack on LGBTQ plus Iowans, they're an attack on all of us. Megan Goldberg, a professor of political science at Cornell College in Mount Vernon, said it was mind-blowing to see how identical the policies are from state to state. GOP-led states are picking up the same pieces of legislation at exactly the same time, but what's also remarkable is the messaging is not even different, Goldberg said of a larger conservative effort nationally to overcome partisan gridlock at the federal level. Republicans are moving the location of policymaking away from the federal government and to the states to counter what's happening federally, she said, noting the same thing occurred during Republican President Donald Trump's administration. We see this resurgence of state power to exert a national agenda, not state-level preferences, Goldberg said, as national conservatives hold Iowa and Florida up as a model to be exported everywhere else. Both states saw statewide red waves in the November midterm elections, bucking the trend seen in other states where the GOP fell short of expectations. The big thing that is causing Iowa, Florida, and other states to deal with these issues result from the pandemic, which forced parents into dealing with students' schoolwork more directly, and a lot of times the parents didn't like what they were seeing, said Tim Hagel, a professor of political science at the University of Iowa. Now, all of a sudden, we're seeing a result of that. Candidates actively pursuing or considering campaigns for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination are already picking up on such themes as they visit the leadoff presidential caucus state. Trump is scheduled to stop Monday in Davenport for an event billed as an education policy speech to touch on parental rights. Trump's former vice president, Mike Pence, also picked up on the parental rights theme during a rally in Cedar Rapids last month. Republican South Carolina U.S. Senator Tim Scott visited a Catholic school in Des Moines with Reynolds, where he applauded the governor for her leadership in passing the bill that creates state-funded scholarships for children to attend private schools. Republican presidential candidate and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley wrote an op-ed stating, America needs to be more like Iowa. Iowa is strong and proud because of its education leadership, Haley wrote. When Governor Kim Reynolds signed education savings accounts into law earlier this year, she gave families the freedom to choose the school that's right for their children. I fought for that same freedom as governor of South Carolina, and I'll deliver it nationwide as president. And I'll make sure no politician can close our schools ever again. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has been successful promoting or passing many of the same policies, held events Friday in Davenport and Des Moines with Reynolds. Reynolds, during a Q&A with DeSantis in Davenport, acknowledged Republican governors are competitive with each other and said Iowa lawmakers have passed or are working on many of the policies Florida has enacted. Democrats have argued they've seen a ramping up of hyper-bipartisan legislation this year, and the agenda being proposed is out of a national playbook, rather than responding to the needs of the state. They're answering to the far right, they're answering to their base, and they're answering to special interests, House Minority Leader Jennifer Comst, Democrat Windsor Heights told reporters Thursday, and frankly, I believe they've gone too far this year, and it's our job to hold them accountable for that this year and into election season. Senate Minority Leader Zach Walls, Democrat Coralville, echoed her, This is obviously a disappointing and dispiriting week in the legislature, Walls said of the passage of divisive, mean-spirited bills over the objections of concerned Iowans. Turning to the week in Iowa, a recap of news from across the state. In the news, gender-affirming care banned. Iowa lawmakers passed a bill that would outlaw gender-affirming medical care for transgender minors, a move that goes against the guidance of major medical institutions. 
If Governor Kim Reynolds signs the bill into law, Iowans under 18 would not be allowed to access puberty blockers, hormones, or surgeries for treatment of gender dysphoria. Republican supporters of the bill said the science on treatment for transgender youth is not settled. Democrats and some Republicans said it would lead to mental health problems and suicides, and it takes away the ability of parents to make informed decisions for their children's health. Hawkeye's racism lawsuit settled. The University of Iowa Athletics Department will reimburse the state for $2 million that would have been paid by taxpayers to settle a racism lawsuit against the athletic department and key coaches and directors. State Auditor Rob Sand voted against paying the settlement when the state was still expecting to pay half the bill, unless Athletics Director Gary Barta, who was originally named in the lawsuit, was fired. Think Tank leader to head Department of Education, Governor Kim Reynolds named an Iowa native with degrees in economics and law and a background working for charter school and private school choice think tanks to run the State Department of Education. Chad Aldis is subject to confirmation in the Republican-led Senate. Government reorganization imminent. A sweeping plan to reorganize the executive branch of state government is a step closer to becoming law after passing Tuesday in the Senate. The bill, pitched by Governor Kim Reynolds, would reduce the number of state agencies from 37 to 16. Republicans said a reorganization would streamline services and save costs, but Democrats took dozens of issues with the bill, arguing that it consolidated too much power under Reynolds. Auditor slams bill, limiting scope. Iowa Democratic State Auditor Rob Sand argued that a bill passed in the Iowa Senate would strip him of his ability to perform his job and allow state agencies to hide misuse of government funds. But Senator Mike Busolo, a Republican who proposed the bill, said it cleans up ambiguity stemming from a 2021 Supreme Court case and protects privacy. Under the heading, they said, For too long, politicians have only promised to reduce the size and cost of government, but today the Iowa Senate took an important step forward to making it a reality. I look forward to getting this bill across the finish line in the House and to my desk. Governor Kim Reynolds on the Senate passing government reorganization bill. And, Anti-trans bills have nothing to do about privacy, but are focused on expelling trans folks from public life. We are not going anywhere, and despite the bills that you put out against us, we will continue to be our most authentic trans selves. Joe Allen on bills targeting transgender youth in the state legislature. Odds and ends. 2024 watch. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis made his Iowa debut Friday, holding rallies in Davenport and Des Moines. DeSantis is considered the major rival to former President Donald Trump ahead of the 2024 Republican caucuses, though he hasn't officially announced his intent to run. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley also was in Iowa this past week, and Trump will visit Monday. School books. Iowa House lawmakers passed a bill Wednesday that would limit which books can be included in school libraries, requiring books to be age-appropriate and barring any books with sexual content. Water cooler. AG challenges EPA. Attorney General Brenna Byrd sent an intent-to-sue letter to the Environmental Protection Agency over its decision to begin year-round sales of E15 next summer. Byrd said the agency should enact the rule change this summer, and it could be in violation of law if it delays. Data privacy. Iowa would become one of only a handful of states to have codified consumer data protection laws under a bill the Senate passed last week. Companies that control large amounts of data would be required to tell Iowans what data they are collecting and allow avenues to request or copy or delete the data. From the Insight page, we have a guest column by Richard Kerfee. Richard Kerfee is an administrator at Westridge Care Center in Cedar Rapids, and he writes, Legislators must act to save long-term care in Iowa. 
Amid the Gazette's legislative headlines this year, one story has yet to rise. Iowa's legislature must act to raise Medicaid reimbursement rates for long-term care. It's the single biggest step to continue delivering quality care to all Iowans, and the system will crumble without a substantial increase. I'm speaking up as the leader of West Ridge Care Center in Cedar Rapids, which is not what many would consider a typical nursing home. We formed in 1992 when a local pharmacist saw the need for private pay facility with private rooms. Our focus is on therapy, reshaping lives and restoring lost abilities after an illness or injury, returning people to their homes. Over time, we've accepted Medicare in connection with hospital services. In 2019, we opened our facility to Medicaid residents. As I talk to other Iowa nursing home providers, more than half the people they serve are on Medicaid. With rapidly rising inflation, Medicaid rates have not kept pace with the rising costs of care. When you look closely, Iowans' reliance on an underfunded Medicaid system is leading to care access issues. Nearly three in four providers have limited or stopped taking admissions. More than a quarter have wait lists for new admissions. The struggle to deliver long-term care affects essential access to acute hospital care. Across Iowa, patients remain in hospital beds because, while they are no longer in critical condition, they are not well enough to return home. Limited long-term care facility admissions can leave people in a hospital bed for weeks or months, reducing space for those with critical medical need. Iowans on Medicaid deserve quality care, and caring staff must be paid for their skills and commitment. We must remain open for Medicaid patients. Iowa saw a record number of long-term care providers close in 2022. As closures accelerate, more people travel further to get essential long-term care for a loved one. We'll see bigger problems with the disintegration of families and communities. Every small facility is important to their community. It's like losing the local school, a larger employer, and a center of caring. There are over 20,000 Iowans reserving long-term care at Iowa nursing homes today. Demand for long-term care is projected to increase by 16.7 percent by 2030 and an additional 17.6 percent by 2035. Everyone wants care to be there when they need it. I serve 54 residents today who didn't think they would be in a skilled facility, but are thankful today to have the option to receive the care they need in their local community. Indeed, regardless of age, people need this system. We had a 50-year-old gentleman who had a work accident and stayed for three months of therapy. He never thought he'd be using this system. It was a challenging case requiring a lot of care. There's a lot of care beyond the doctor's office and hospital. We're part of a process to get people home successfully, to get the best health for patients. Our average length of stay is less than a year and continues to shorten. Colleagues talk about it. Why do we do what we do? There are easier ways to make money. We do this work because we are called to do it. It's a calling, not a job. I can't pay anybody what they're really worth. These are people who know and care for one another. If we don't support this work, then how do we respect the lives of our patients? The time for a substantial increase in Medicaid reimbursement is now. Without it, access will deteriorate quickly. So I ask that Iowans understand what we really do, give quality of life to those we love. Todd Dorman in his 24-hour Dorman column writes, a modified citizenship, modified citizenship test for Iowa students. Tucked into the governor's big education bill, Senate File 496, is a little discussed provision requiring Iowa students to take the latest U.S. citizenship test to prove their knowledge of United States government and civics. Kids must get at least 70% of the questions right to graduate, but they can take the test as many times as they like. More than 90% of immigrants vying for citizenship pass the test. The bill also allows school districts to modify the test. Given the current political situation in Iowa and the nation, I think the modifications definitely are needed. Here are some suggestions that better reflect our times. One, who is totally the boss of us? A, Governor Kim Reynolds. 
B, all of the above. Two, how does a bill become a law? A, the governor mentions it in her condition of the state address. B, a bill is drafted a few days later. C, the bill spends a tons of money but skips the appropriation process. D, public comment is allowed, but just for show. E, the bill passes less than two weeks after it's proposed. F, it's signed amid a celebration by out-of-state interest groups. G, all of the above. Three, equal protection under the law means what? A, straight white Christian people can't be uncomfortable. B, we are all protected equally from people we don't like. C, we can be separate, be equal. D, that sounds like socialism. E, all of the above. Four, how has slavery shaped American history? A, slavery, what slavery? B, you'd be surprised how well slaves were treated. C, this question makes me uncomfortable. D, I'm going to report you to the Department of Education. E, despite all the racism, this is not a racist country. F, all of the above. Five, who is the president of the United States? A, Donald Trump. B, a Republican because the election is illegitimate otherwise. C, Joe Biden, if you believe the liberal, liberal media. D, I'm a Republican politician and I'd rather not say. E, all of the above. Four, who wrote the Constitution? A, God, who then overnighted it to James Madison. B, guys in powdered wigs who wanted to ban drag shows. C, slaveholders who wanted to secure the blessings of liberty. D, we the people, but not those people. E, all of the above. Five, what does checks and balances mean? A, the legislature checks with the governor to get its marching orders. B, checks from big donors tip the balance in favor of bills they want. C, lawmakers body check constituencies they don't care about and knock them off balance. D, check with conservative think tanks to see what bills should be passed. E, all of the above. Six, the Constitution guarantees freedom of the press. What does that mean? A, the press is free to watch our government from a great distance. B, the press is free to print only stuff that I agree with. <clears throat> C, I'm free to point and yell bias at every journalist. D, all news should be free of charge. E, this column is the last straw. I'm canceling my subscription. F, all of the above. Seven, Iowa's motto is our liberties we prize and our rights we will maintain. What does that mean? A, it's just a suggestion. B, if you read the fine print, I'm pretty sure it says except transgender people. C, we're at liberty to curtail rights if we've got the votes. D, liberties and rights end at conception. E, all of the above. Eight, what role does the Supreme Court play in our government? A, it reviews all the rights we have and deletes the bad ones. B, it owns the libs. C, it makes sure the norms of 1787 remain the law of the land. D, it guarantees we can each own a bazillion cool guns. E, it maintains a wall of separation between people and their rights. F, all of the above. Nine, what role does the Electoral College play in presidential elections? A, it guarantees Republicans can still win the presidency. B, it elects the president unless the vice president vetoes the results. C, state electors actually vote for president, not the people. It makes total sense. D, it can't be a college without a football team. E, it provides a great pretext for an insurrection. F, all of the above. And 10, under the Constitution, can Iowa secede from the Union? A, judging by the number of Confederate flags I've seen around here, I'm pretty sure we already have. B, we've got 3 million people and 23 million hogs. Just try and stop us. C, yes, if socialism starts leaking in from Minnesota and Illinois. D, I favor a national divorce so long as farm payments and the ethanol mandate are included in alimony. E, yes, if we can continue sending our dirty water to the Gulf of Mexico. And F, all of the above. And turning to the community letters and the editorial cartoon, the editorial cartoon from Joe Heller, who is based in Green Bay, is a four-panel strip today. 
we have a man and a woman. He has on his shirt the letter U and she has on her shirt S so that standing next to one another it reads US. In the first panel they both remark, let's stop changing our clocks twice a year. In the second panel they both say, hey we finally agree on something. In the third panel they both say, okay let's keep it the same time once we... And in the fourth panel the man says, spring ahead and the woman says, fall back. The first letter today is from Scott Burnett of Cedar Rapids. Dilbert devolved into propaganda. The Dilbert cartoon used to be one of the first things I read when I opened the paper every day. It was so spot on on its absurdity of the daily life around the office, sometimes it seemed he worked at my company. But a few years ago, it seemed the cartoon became less funny, more mean-spirited, and just weird at times, and I always wondered why the change. Come to find out, Scott Adams, the cartoonist, fell down the rabbit hole of Q and Donald Trump and was spewing conspiracy theories and hate speech on his social media. It's so sad to see a talented, insightful person lose their grip on their humanity because of one man and a right-wing hate media designed to fuel division and doubt. The recent deposition by Fox pundits and Rupert Murdoch himself that they lied repeatedly on air to further their agenda shouldn't surprise anyone. And it just shows how easy it is for a supposed news organization to manipulate people into angry rhetoric and violence. Fox is not a news channel. It is un-American propaganda. Scott Burnett of Cedar Rapids. Next, Brenda Meyer of Iowa City writes, Smaller government, not less government. I have listened over and over to Republicans telling people they want smaller government, less government interference in our lives. Yet the bills being put forth by our Republican-dominated legislature seem anything but. They are demanding interference in health care, reproductive health care, trans health care, etc., in removing the freedom to read, book bans, even where one can use bathroom facilities. And this is not all the legislation being put forth that interferes with our stated beliefs that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We the people must not allow legislators' unqualified medical judgment to deny the people the opportunity of life nor allow legislative interference in the liberty to read and learn. All this leads to our pursuit of happiness. This must stop, and we must return to being free Americans. Brenda Meyer of Iowa City. Next, Carol Nils and Bob Engler of Cedar Rapids write, Be nice to all. Here's our try at the civil discourse suggested recently in the Gazette by Debbie Koopman and Mary Mockler. We have a lovely great-niece who is an excellent musician, intelligent, kind, has many friends, and is transgender. But when we say that last word, some seem to erase the rest of her description. Imagine someone saying to you, you cannot be who you are, telling you that you must not be your sex or your ethnicity, etc. If we think we, white, heterosexual, of European descent, are the norm, perhaps it helps to open our eyes to the reality that this is not so. Diversity is the norm among planets, plants, wildlife, and humans. All are welcome here on this earth, and our task is to care for one another. Can we expect anyone to be other than who they are? That is not our job. Please, let us be respectful and kind once again to all. Carol Nils and Bob Engler of Cedar Rapids. The next letter is for Carol from Carol Stevenson of Cedar Rapids. Support our local newsroom in CR. Our local employee-owned newspaper, The Gazette, still is here after 140 years when so many newspapers in Iowa and other states are not. This is no small feat. I hear grumbles about delivery, editorials, and the national columnists, but whether I like everything printed, I support our local professional journalists who report on what is happening in our community, state, and state house. Times are tough for newsrooms. The press has been removed from the Iowa Senate floor to reduce their access to what is happening during debates about bills. 
and the governor doesn't hold news conferences unless she is promoting her agenda. Times are tough for families and their budgets too, but think of what we lose each time a local news source ceases to exist. I encourage you to continue your support of this independent news source with your subscription. Carolyn Stevenson of Cedar Rapids. And the final letter is from Coral Dye of Cedar Rapids. Thanks for recognizing Area Youth in Gazette. What a great idea it is to recognize students in the 14 Under 14 Awards as printed in the March 3rd Gazette. It was a blessing to read about the acts of kindness shown by these young people as they reach out to those who may not have many friends or who struggle with disabilities. The Best Buddies program is such a worthwhile one, and I believe that Kennedy High School also has one. Thanks to the Kids First Law Center for sponsoring these awards, and to the Gazette for the article to give this recognition. In a world where wrongdoing seems to get a lot of publicity, it is a breath of fresh air to read about those who truly care for others and reach out to help. Thank you. Coral Dye of Cedar Rapids. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, March 12, 2023 on the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. And I am your reader, Sharon Faldudo. We turn to the obituaries, other notices. James Allen Melsha, age 78, of Kaiser, Oregon, formerly of Cedar Rapids, died March 7th. Papich Cuba Funeral Service of Cedar Rapids. Kenneth Meyer, age 85, of Fairfax, died March 9th. Brosh Chapel in the Ava Center, Cedar Rapids. Gloria Richards, age 72, of Iowa City, died February 27th, Celebrate Life, Iowa. Dennis O'Neill, 76, of Muscatine, died March 2nd. Fred Regill Funeral and Cremation Care in Baxter. Barney Henderson, age 62, of Winterset, died March 4th, Celebrate Life, Iowa. And Richard Skaggs, age 76, of St. Louis, Missouri, died March 5th, Celebrate Life, Iowa. Janan Baldridge, known as Jan, age 83, passed away on March 9th at Hallmar Care Center. Jan was a devoted sister and aunt, and everyone knew and loved Aunt Jan, who could often be found cheering on her nieces and nephews of activities. At Jan's request, there will be no funeral or memorial service. Patricia M. Day, born Patricia M. Harrington, age 86, passed away peacefully on March 5th at the Dennis and Donna Oldorf Hospice House of Mercy in Hiawatha. Pat devoted herself to raising her family and volunteered her time at Pierce Elementary, St. Pius X, and Regina High School. In 1980, Regis High School, she became involved with the first years of the Mercy Hospice Program and contributed over 4,000 hours over 42 years of service. She was chosen and received recognition at the annual Show You Care Banquet through KCRG in 2012. She concurrently volunteered her time with the National Kidney Foundation. Pat loved bowling, walking, hiking, aerobics, scrabble, boggle, word games, all things Irish, coffee with her friends, church circle, Prairie Woods Wednesday women, flowers, holding her cat, fluffy, camping, music, and Neil Diamond. A Cedar Memorial is serving the family. There will be a visitation from 10 to 11 a.m. Monday, June 26th at St. Pius X Catholic Church with Mass at 11 a.m., burial at Mount Calvary Cemetery, and lunch gathering at St. Pius following services. Wilma Jean Blosser, known as Willie, passed away peacefully on February 11th. She served as Assistant Administrator and Health Services Supervisor at the Winslow House Healthcare Center for eight years. While living in Iowa, she was a member of Quota Club International of Cedar Rapids and St. Paul's United Methodist Church. In 1996, she moved to Palm Desert, California for the betterment of her health. 
She was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis while in nursing school and never let it slow her down. She was often heard saying, I may have MS, but MS doesn't have me. Her source of strength was her God. She was also known for her poetry and artistic abilities. Celebration of Life service will be held at 1 p.m. May 21st at Palm Desert Community Presbyterian Church. William Stewart of Cedar Rapids, known as Bill, a celebration of life service for Bill will be held at 11 a.m. Thursday, March 16th in the Chapel of Memories at Cedar Memorial Cemetery, 4200 First Avenue Northeast, followed by a short procession to the Mausoleum Rotunda. A visitation will also be held prior to the service beginning at 10 a.m. in the State Room. Bill passed away peacefully on January 1st, 2023. Teresa Marie Osinosak of Cedar Rapids, age 86, passed away March 8th. A visitation will be held at 9 a.m. until time of funeral mass 10 a.m. Wednesday, March 15th at All Saints Catholic Church, Cedar Rapids. Interment will follow at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. She had different jobs throughout her life. Madden's Supper Club, Randall's, Barlow's, and Ryan's Steakhouse. She cleaned All Saints Catholic Church for years. Her most important job was being a wife and mother to her beloved family. Teresa was a devoted Catholic and EWTN advocate. Patricia A. Schmidt, age 89, of Cedar Rapids, passed away on March 5th at Grand Living Nursing Home. Memorial service will be held at 10 a.m. Monday, March 20th at Immaculate Conception Catholic Church, located at 857 3rd Avenue Southeast in Cedar Rapids. Lunch will follow the Mass. Visitation will begin one hour prior at the church. Burial will follow at St. Patrick's Cemetery in Tama. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Marion is assisting the family. <clears throat> she was a master gardener and an active member of the Immaculate Conception Church in Cedar Rapids. Patricia and her husband were instrumental in establishing the Mid-Iowa Workshop in Marshalltown. She was a great baker and cook and loved to sew, especially quilting. Patricia enjoyed playing bridge, traveling, including abroad, and spending time with children and great-grandchildren. Ula Ryber Christensen of Cedar Rapids passed away peacefully on March 9th. She was born in Aarhus, Denmark, but moved to the United States. Ula was a devout member of LDS Church and held many church callings throughout the years. She worked for years on our family's gene genealogy history and was able to trace our family tree back to the mid-1800s in Europe. She was also privileged to be called on a senior mission for the LDS Church and served as missionary for 18 months in the Salt Lake City Family and Church History Center, assisting others of Scandinavian heritage, making use of her experience. She was a stay-at-home mom for many years, but as the kids grow older, she worked as a lunch lady for the Cedar Rapids Community School District and at a care center assisting pediatric patients. Those wanting to pay respects to both Jorn and Ula, a celebration of life, noon to 4 p.m. Saturday, March 18th at Prairie Oak Lodge at Wanatee Park in Marion, formerly Squaw Creek. Thomas F. Ritter, age 77, of Cedar Rapids and formerly of Belle Plaine, passed away March 3rd at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. He and his wife settled in Hiawatha, Iowa. Tom drove truck for Little Ginny Trucking and Hawkeye Refrigeration. In the early 90s, Tom and Dee began Ritter Trucking, which brought them to Belle Plaine, Iowa. Tom drove while Dee worked dispatched and organized the business. After retirement, Tom continued to drive truck for Elliott Brothers in Dysert. When Tom was not working, he enjoyed fishing, boating, camping, and motocross in his youth. Most of all, he loved traveling. Celebration of Life will be held from noon to 3 p.m. Saturday, March 18th 
at Robuck Newhouse Funeral Service in Belle Plaine. Private family burial will take place at Fairview Cemetery in Earlville on a later date. Kenneth Wayne Tishau, age 90, of Cedar Rapids, passed away on March 3rd at Hiawatha Care Center in Hiawatha. A celebration of life will be held at 4 to 7 p.m. Tuesday, March 14th, at Murdoch Funeral Home in Marion. Inurement with military honors will be held at a later date at Springdale Friends Cemetery in Cedar County. He joined the U.S. Navy in 1951, serving on the USS Renshaw in Japan, Korea, Midway, and Hawaii during the Korean conflict with an honorable discharge in 1955. Ken worked 26 years for the Social Security Administration, working in Des Moines, Mason City, Omaha, and Dubuque, and concluding in Cedar Rapids, where he served as Assistant District and District Office Manager for 17 years until he retired in 1987. Ken was an enthusiastic community supporter and was greatly involved in civic affairs. He served two terms on the Marion Independent School Board and one term on the Marion City Council. He was very active in Lions as a longtime member of the Marion Noon Lions, as well as Lions Clubs in Reno and Gilbert. Ken received the Warren Coleman Honorary Award and was a Melvin Jones Fellow. He belonged to American Legion Post 298 in Marion, and he was a longtime volunteer at Usher's Ferry Historic Village, St. Luke's Hospital and Habitat for Humanity, and also volunteered at food banks in Reno and Gilbert. Karen K. Rios, age 73, of Ocean Springs, Mississippi, formerly of Kelowna, passed away on March 4th at Memorial Hospital in Gulfport, Mississippi. Visitation will be from 9 to 11 a.m. Thursday, March 16th, at Brosh Chapel in the Ava Center, 2121 Bowling Street Southwest in Cedar Rapids. Celebration of Life will be at 11.30 a.m. Thursday, March 16th at Brosh Chapel. Burial will be in St. John's Catholic Cemetery. Karen worked as a registered nurse at the Veterans Hospital in Iowa City for over 27 years until her retirement. She enjoyed crocheting, reading, needlepoint, sewing, traveling, gardening, tending to animals, and most of all, spending time with her family. Darlis Riley, age 85, of Fort Dodge, formerly of Cedar Rapids, died on March 5th at Friendship Haven. Funeral services will be held 11 a.m. Friday, March 17th at Stewart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services, Cedar Rapids, with Reverend Matthew Hahn officiating. Burial will take place at Holy Cross Cemetery in Keystone. Visitation will be from 4 to 6 p.m. Thursday, March 16th at the funeral home. Darlis' hobbies included playing cards, bingo, camping, and canning homegrown vegetables. When possible, she'd enjoy a Pepsi or basking in the sunshine. Georgianne Lumise Schmidt, age 80, of Plano, Texas, passed away on January 23rd after a short illness. She worked as an ER nurse at Mercy Hospital in Cedar Rapids and later earned a BA in administration at Coe College, graduating magna cum laude with a BA in administration. Georgianne worked in human resources as a nurse recruiter at St. Luke's Hospital in Cedar Rapids and later earned her MBA in human resources from the University of Iowa in 1995. In 1998, Georgianne settled in Plano, Texas, where she loved cruising around in her red convertible Mustang GT. She enjoyed cooking and baking, loved needle crafts, and spending many happy hours sewing, knitting, and doing cross-stitch. A memorial mass will be said in Georgianne's honor at 11 a.m. Monday, March 27th at St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Parish in Plano, Texas. Beverly A. Dudley, born Beverly A. McFatridge of Springtown, Texas, took up residence in Glory on March 2nd, 2023. 
She was born in 1940, making her age 82. Beverly grew up with a love of music. She loved not only singing, but was an accomplished accordionist, once being lent Myron Florin's accordion to compete after bumping her bellows on a bedpost. After rheumatic fever caused her to be unable to play the accordion, she turned to tinkering on an old organ and singing in the church choir. Mom was skilled in upholstery and sewing. She inherited her love of crochet from her mother, but could never quite forget knitting. Mom had many longtime grooming clients, and I was the bather helper, possibly why I'm overrun with poodles today. After retiring, Mom and Gil devoted more time to Bible studies in their yard. They still had dreams of another fifth wheel to travel, but various health issues held them back. Mom didn't want a memorial, a formal service. The family will have a celebration of life at a later date. Ralph Joseph Martin Jr. of Rancho Palo Verdes, California, was born November 4th, 1934 in Iowa City and passed away on November 21st, 2021 in Torrance, California. His family moved to a farm near Central City and he graduated from Central City High School. He began his service in the U.S. Army in Korea in 1957. After his discharge, he and his wife moved to Riverside, California. In semi-retirement, Ralph designed and with his partner built Torrance Flight Park at Torrance Municipal Airport. Mary Agnes Halva, born Mary Agnes Decker of Walford, age 83, died Friday, March 3rd. A celebration of life will be held Monday, May 22nd at St. John 23rd Church near Fairfax, where she was a member. Visitation will commence at 9 a.m. with services at 10 a.m. Murdoch Lunewood Funeral Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids is assisting the family. She lived in many states and traveled extensively. She was a hardworking farmer, wife, and mother, and an armchair Hawkeye women's basketball analyst and enthusiast. She enjoyed gardening, reading, experimental cooking, assembling jigsaw puzzles at breakneck speed, deciphering crypto quotes, visiting casinos, and beating her family at cribbage. Verl Eugene Guthrie of Highlands Ranch, Colorado, age 79, died February 22nd. He was a graduate of East High School in Des Moines. He served four years in the Air Force, Davis Monthan Air Force Base in Tucson, Arizona, achieving the rank of Sergeant E-4. He followed Air Force service with a 30-year career in telecommunications, beginning with Northwestern Bell in Des Moines, until 1994, and then with U.S. West and Quest in Denver, Colorado. After retiring in 2000 from Quest, Verl worked for two companies supporting the telephone industry and retired in 2006. A celebration of life and reception will be held at 10 a.m. Thursday, April 13th at Horan and McCotney, 5303 East County Line Road in Centennial, Colorado. Military honors follow at Fort Logan National Cemetery. Richard Charles Metz, age 82 of Marion, passed away peacefully February 23rd at Oldorf House of Mercy from Louis Body Dementia. A celebration of life, 1 to 4 p.m. Saturday, March 18th at American Legion, 625 31st Street, Marion. Burial, a later date at St. Joseph's Catholic Cemetery, Cedar Rapids, with military honors. Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services of Cedar Rapids are caring for Richard's family. He served in the Army as a radio operator and was stationed in Fort Gordon, Georgia. He was honorably discharged in 1964. Richard worked for Duffy Schomburger, FMC, Grand Auto, and Kettleson RV, where he retired in 2005. He loved spending time with his family, camping, and going on vacation. Richard adored his grandchildren and loved attending their activities. He was a master of all trades and could repair anything. He also enjoyed bowling, golfing, classic country western music, 
watching NASCAR and was the most loyal Hawkeye fan ever. Dolores Marie Caden, age 92, of Cedar Rapids, died March 5th at Mercy Hallmark. Services, 10 a.m. Tuesday at St. Jude Catholic Church by concelebrants, the Reverend Nick March and the Reverend Jack Flaherty. Burial, St. John Cemetery. A vigil service will be held at 4 p.m. Monday at Tian Funeral Home. Those not attending the vigil service may visit with a family from 4.30 to 7 p.m. Monday at the funeral home and after 9 a.m. Tuesday at the church. And Lester Jean Rao, age 75, of Springfield, Missouri, left this journey of life on February 13, 2023. He was born in Independence, Iowa. He proudly served his country as a CPL in the U.S. Marine Corps. He joined in 1965 and served during the Vietnam War, where he received the Vietnam Service and Campaign Medals. He also received numerous medals and badges to include the Rifle Markmanship Badge, National Defense Service Medal, and Good Conduct Medal. When he came home from Vietnam, he started working at Wilson's Meatpacking Plant in Cedar Rapids and went on to Bell Telephone Company, now known as Lumen. He moved to Las Vegas and was head of security at previous Stardust Casino and went on to work at security at the University of Nevada Med Center. Honor service will be held at 1 p.m. May 20th at Troy Mills Cemetery. Cheers to Les following the memorial at Dharma's Bar and Grill in Troy Mills. On the sports page, Mike Loss writes, Wildly different selection Sunday for Hawkeyes. Today's brackets should clear a path to the Sweet 16 for the Iowa women and clog one up for the men. Welcome to Selection Sunday when college basketball fans are filled with excitement, anger, joy, and of course, existential dread. In other words, it's another day out of 365 this year, except it's a bit worse because we had an hour stolen from us before we even awakened. When the Iowa Hawkeye men's and women's teams, we have two wildly different scenarios. The women Hawkeyes will get two games at home to start things, barring a first-round loss that is simply not going to happen. The men, however, will go to some far-flung destination in what everyone seems to be assuming will be a game between an eighth seed and a ninth seed. The winner of that almost surely would face number one seed in that seed's geographic region. What happened in the first week of the NCAAs last year will surely be tossed about in this week's pre-tourney discussions. Don't let the past blind you to the promise of tomorrow. Those who dwell on history are doomed to repeat it. I may not have gotten that quote exactly right, but let's proceed. First, the Iowa women. They were a number two seed last year and maybe again tonight. Last year, they were stunned by number 10 Creighton in the second round at Carver Hawkeye Arena, and a state was denied an Iowa-Iowa State Sweet 16 game in North Carolina. Are you to fear some sort of second round repeat? No, the Hawkeyes will be vigilant. Sure, more importantly, they're better and more experienced than last year's team. What you saw at last weekend's Big Ten tournament was an Iowa team playing its best, most confident ball of the season. More players than just Caitlin Clark and Monica Cisnano rose above the occasion in winning that event. The number seven or number 10 seed that Iowa will face in the second round before a sold-out home crowd won't do what Creighton did a year ago. The Hawkeye men? Let's not pretend expectations for a long stay in the tournament aren't low. There are multiple reasons. Assuming Iowa is a number eight or number nine seed, as most who care about these things suggest, the elephant in the bracket is the number one seed that looms in the second round. But that's if the Hawkeyes even get that far. Losses to Nebraska and Ohio State last week didn't inspire faith. On top of that, there is the specter of the Hawkeyes' first-round defeat to Richmond last year when many national folks had Iowa as a pick to reach the Final Four. That happened a year after Iowa was number two seed and fell to number seven Oregon in the second round. So this year it's going to not only defeat an equal in the first round but knock out a giant in round two? Sounds challenging, no? This is not a prediction by any stretch of the imagination because picking a 13-loss team to beat a number one seed is not a good business model. 
However, has there been a team in the history of college basketball that has played to the level of its competition the way the Iowa men of 22-23 have? Consider, the Hawkeyes were 2-6 against the teams that were the four lowest seeds of the Big Ten tourney, but are 8-4 against the league's likely NCAA tourney teams. Consider, Iowa lost by 9 points to Eastern Illinois, which finished in last place in the Ohio Valley Conference and was 9-22 overall, but the Hawkeyes won by 19 points over Iowa State, which will have higher NCAA seed than everyone else in the Big Ten, except Purdue and perhaps Indiana. The Hawkeyes beat NCAA-bound Rutgers in Indiana on the road by double digits. They lost at 11th seed Nebraska and 13th place Ohio by double digits. Iowa can beat a number one seed in the second round. I saw a number nine seed do it to a number one once. You may remember Northern Iowa, Kansas in 2010. As big a trick for the Hawkeyes as beating a number one may be getting to the second round. However, that plays into the existential dread and will not stand for that here. And finally, the time machine. I look back at the people, places, and events in Eastern Iowa. St. Patrick's CR Church, founded in 1886, attracted Irish parishioners and priests by Diane Fannin Langton, correspondent. Cedar Rapids is known for its Czech and Slovak heritage, but Irish heritage is part of the city too, and one of the community's gathering places has long been St. Patrick's Catholic Church. The church was organized in 1886, and the Reverend Thomas Richardson, who was serving at Fairfax, began serving the new parish's members. Fundraising began immediately for building for the Mission Church. A frame structure went up at the corner of 2nd Avenue and 7th Street West. It was dedicated July 21, 1886, and Richardson built a house near the church in March 1887. When Richardson died in September 1888, the Reverend M.J. Quirk succeeded him. In November 1889, the Reverend Thomas Sullivan, a scholar and an orator, came to the parish from Sheldon in northwest Iowa. Under Sullivan's leadership, the St. Patrick's congregation turned its attention to planning a new church. Numerous fundraising events were held, including a big one in November 1890 at Woodward Hall, formerly the Union Opera House, that lasted a full week. Merchants and members of the community donated items to sell in the hall, which had been decorated by the women of the church. Enough money was raised to begin building St. Patrick's, and the church's cornerstone was laid at the corner of 1st Avenue and 5th Street Southwest at 3 p.m., October 18, 1891, in the presence of an immense assemblage of deeply interested spectators, according to Gazette coverage. The newspaper reported the new church was destined to be one of the handsomest churches in Iowa. Edwin Whitfield of Makokata oversaw the stonework. The walls were expected to be up in a month and the church completed by February 1, 1892. It took seven months longer before the church was dedicated August 28th. Half a dozen Sisters of Charity also moved to Cedar Rapids from Dubuque that month to start a new school in the old church after it was remodeled. The church was completed at a cost of $30,000 around $986,000 in today's dollars. The 130 by 60 foot structure built from Anamosa stone and heated by steam seated 750. The pews and interior finish work were made of red oak with the floors made of hard maple. A choir and organ loft was built over the entry. When the church opened, the marble altar had not yet been delivered and the chancel window was not completed. The congregation had to wait a few months for the pipe organ too, which was dedicated in December. The Reverend Thomas W. Drum, a native of Ireland, became St. Patrick's pastor in January 1916. He served for four years until being consecrated bishop of the Des Moines Diocese. His successor, the Reverend Daniel Day Lenahan, was appointed in June 1919. In 1932, it was determined the church structure had areas of weakness and extensive alterations or reconstruction would be needed, according to the parish's history. It took years to address those weaknesses and major reconstruction ordered. In January 1950, a startling photo ran in the Gazette showing the church reduced to its side and front walls and tower. 
The rest of the church was demolished to make way for the major rebuild. William Leitner, a St. Patrick's member and a noted Cedar Rapids builder who had retired, was in charge of the rebuild. It took two years to finish the job. The roof, the interior, and the back wall, which is extended back 17 feet from the old wall line, are all new, the Gazette reported. Two more doors were added to the front of the church, and the exterior was sandblasted to make it all look the same. Craftsmen in Carrara, Italy, carved three African onyx altars to stand in front of the background panels made of Carrara marble. The stained glass dome over the altar and the stained glass windows were made in St. Louis. The rebuilt church was dedicated November 27, 1951. That ceremony was followed by the Golden Jubilee Mass for Monsignor Daniel J. Lenahan, who had been at St. Patrick's for 33 years. St. Patrick's, which sits about five blocks from the Cedar River, again faced major restoration after the 2008 flood, as did its parish center, built in 2005. Its pastor, the Reverend Ivan Neenhouse, spent 11 years helping rebuild the church before moving on to St. Patrick's in Cedar Falls in September 2021. The current pastor is the Reverend Dennis Miller. And that brings me to the end of reading the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, March 12th, 2023 on the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. I've been your reader, Sharon Faldudo, reading to you from my kitchen table in Coralville as usual. Remember that you can access a recording of this or any other Iris recording at any time on our website, iowaradioreading.org. We welcome your comments and thank you for listening. 